Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. This morning, we are starting our 10th week of our study of the Holy Spirit. And last week, as we examined spiritual gifts, it was intended to make us aware of the reality that these gifts exist within each believer within the church. And we have received these gifts from the Holy Spirit with a certain giftedness that is to be received and used for the glory of God and the edification of the body of believers, which is the body of Christ. I spoke with uh, two individuals this morning. One was serving, and people say, well, serving doesn't seem very important. Well, neither do all of those cells that work in your body to fight off infection, and there's a lot of things we don't see in our physical body that are all essential to a proper function of the body. So uh, one was serving at a wedding, and uh, Tommy said she was serving with the youngsters last week, so that's great to hear. And we learned these gifts could be divided into three categories, signs, gifts, speaking, and service. The signs, gifts, such as healing, casting out demons, raising the dead, tongue, speech, and other various miracles were received by the apostles to lay a foundation for the New Testament church and authenticated the message they were preaching with a power that effected the supernatural to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we discussed last week, these signs gifts ceased with the passing of the apostolic authority, specifically the 13 apostles who laid this foundation only once. And we referred to Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, God is able to heal. He still works in the hearts of men supernaturally. The demon-possessed are still delivered, but it is by prayer and God's mercy that these miracles come to pass. The immediate, and we talked how that means without mediator, signs and gifts, where the gifted apostle could say directly a command and the supernatural would result, that gift has ceased. The gifts of speaking, such as the apostle who is sent with the Spirit's anointing to establish the gospel in the world with authority, coupled with him the prophet in the first century who would speak revelation future prophecy and proclaim the gospel of Christ locally have also passed. The first century church did not have the canon of scripture, and so these prophets that were revealing and preaching with this divine anointing are different than what a prophet would do today. Now we talked about how a prophet's third responsibility besides revelation and prophecy was to speak the word of God. And we have modern-day prophets in that respect. They share what God has given or revealed in his word. So that is the big difference between the apostleship and prophets of old and today. So those gifted with speaking today, the evangelist who goes out into the world, the pastor and teacher continue. And we see the fruit of those ministries. The evangelist is similar to the, the office of the apostle and that he goes out into the world to proclaim Christ. Missionaries today fulfill this role. Pastors sometimes leave, leave the local congregation for a period of time to visit a fledgling or a newly beginning body of believers to assist in a church plant. And there are ministries in prisons, on the streets. You've seen street preachers that share the word of God with complete strangers. And those who share the gospel in, with those in, in a destitute position. The pastor who shepherds and teaches the local body of believers consistently, and that is the day in and day out, week in and week out, pastor 
is consistently there to rightly divide the word of truth in season and out of season. He is called with fellow leaders as elders to cast a vision for the success of the various ministries in the church and leads in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's table in accordance with Christ's commands. Now, the third gift of service that we talked about last week was that of service. And we talked about leadership, even among the laity. We have many leaders, even here at Faith Bible, who have been called to lead a certain ministry, serving in areas we know the service, such as children's ministries uh, with media and technology uh, that aid in our corporate worship, even in the present, and sending out the messages to those who are not able to join with us, that is a ministry. It's a service. And those who prepare for the men's and women's breakfast that we have, any other special gatherings, and those who prepare meals for those in uh, grieving with the loss of a loved one or those who are sick and homebound, uh, these are all wonderful acts of service. And it's a gift of the Spirit to see a need and then to perform that need for the edification of the body. 1 Peter 4.10 states, As each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it, serving one another as good stewards in the manifold grace of God. The Holy Spirit, we learn, sovereignly bestows these gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12.11 it says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Just as he wills to whom the gift is given, what gift is given, and when the gift is given. It's his sovereign will. We also know that each gift serves a different function. As we talked already, the human body and all of those intricate workings even though there's a diversity of gifts, there is a unity. And we know this is the case because of the words human body or even an army. These words uh, don't talk about the particular parts, but refer to the universal that they are a part of. The sum of the organs, the tissue, muscles, hormones, etc. is the human body. The sum of the general, lieutenants, major generals, brigadier general, colonel, captain, cadets in the army, the army is that universal. It's all under the banner of army. So the sum of the particulars then is this universal. And universal, the word itself, is unity and diversity joined together. The church is the entire body of believers respecting that very distinct believer that is part of the whole. Although there is a diversity of gifts, we have a oneness as being part of the universal church. Now jumping into this week's lesson, the title is The Spirit and Worship. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was first established in 1647, states in chapter 25 specifically six sections to explain the function of the church. And it's the corporate church. Section 1 of that chapter says, The Catholic or universal church, the whole world, the invisible church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one, there's that oneness, under Christ the head thereof. And is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's section one. Section two continues the universal idea by stating the kingdom of the Lord Jesus consists of individuals from every nation, not just Israel, as was true in the Old Testament. Section three explains that the functions of the church in gathering in and perfecting the saints is done, and this is part of that section, by his own presence and spirit according to the promise, making them effectual. That's talking about effectual in ministry. 
There is no effective ministry apart from the unifying power and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word of God. Sections 4 and 5, which we will read later, enter into the theme of worship. Now this idea is our focus this morning, and may we pray that as we endeavor to understand this, what true worship is, that we would, as Ephesians 4 tells us, be equipped of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to continue in this study regarding the work of your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for all that he does for us. We would be probably not in this house if it were not for him, and we would not have the word of God that we would be learning from if it weren't for him, and we just pray that as we study this, we would be united in heart and mind in service for your glory and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, worship as an idea is exalted within the church. John MacArthur writes that worship is the supreme purpose for which the believers were redeemed and the occupation with which they will be eternally enthralled. That's what we're going to be doing for eternity. When believers gather together on the first day of every week, as we are today, as the church began to do since the resurrection of Christ, the purpose for which they gather is to worship. The fourth section of the 25th chapter of the confession that we talked about this morning, the Westminster, states, this Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible, due to persecution and the work of the Spirit in certain areas of the world. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, the ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. Now, on your way to church this morning was worshiping with purity of heart and mind your focus? Or were you thinking of your post-service afternoon plans? During a church service, is your mind focused upon the beauty and supremacy of Christ or upon the speed at which the songs are played? Guys, don't look at Mike. Don't look at Mike Schaus. No, I'm just kidding. He does a wonderful job, week in, week out, with the team. In this age of hurriedness, do you ever draw near to God in an unhurried way, letting your heart and mind exalt Christ as the hymns are played, as Scripture is read, or during corporate prayer? Do you think upon the words of the preacher? And then when you go home, what happens? These questions are meant to draw attention to what many perceive to be worship. A specific place, a church for instance, at a specific time, usually between 9 and 11.30, with a specific order of events that are performed in a specific way, and for good reason. Worship has also become viewed as a time when individuals receive or are blessed with an experience. And some churches call it a worship experience these days. And it has become a worship experience rather than a worship service. There's a giving of worship in service. And there is also a receiving of blessing in this service of worship. But worship primarily is a giving 
of something. It is giving obedience, first of ourselves and then our heart and then even our possessions. In so doing, we receive the fullness of spirit. We talked about that before. The fullness of the spirit is the default position when we are yielding and obedient, which cultivates the fruits promised when walking in the spirit in Galatians 5. Now, a basic definition of worship, a general definition, is honor paid to a superior being. Now, there are worship centers all around the world. Temples, mosques, shrines, synagogues, and churches. All these places are for the purpose of paying honor to some supposed superior being. Even stadiums have become worship centers where men and women pay honor to other men and women who are superior in song or athletic ability or intellect. But true worship of the Lord is to ascribe to Him honor and glory and adoration, praise, reverence, and devotion that is due Him, both for His greatness and for His goodness. Jesus spoke about true worship with a Samaritan woman. We call her the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, and it's in your handout if you'd like to follow along, as Jesus approaches this woman who's drawing water alone, usually women drew water together, in the Samaritan city of Sychar, Christ was passing through Samaria as a lot of Jews did through Sychar. It was a shorter distance for where he was going from Galilee. Jewish rabbis didn't speak to Samaritans. But Jesus shared with her life-giving truths, which she didn't understand. So Jesus made it known to her of her lifestyle. And it was not a lifestyle of the rich and famous. On the contrary, it was a very shameful lifestyle which was probably why she was drawing water alone. She shifts the conversation to worship once he said, where is your husband? And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You had five, and the person you're with now isn't even your husband. And she was cut to the heart. Well, for whatever reason, she shifts the conversation to worship. That the Samaritans have a truth, and the Jews have a truth. And uh, let me get my Bible. So he says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and that was Mount Gerizim. And you people say, that's the Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, because they had a difference on where worship was appropriate, he said, neither place is going to matter. He says, you worship what you do not know, because the Samaritans rejected what the prophets had said. They only held to the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, and they didn't think about the Messiah and the coming Messiah. So he was saying, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus makes it clear that true worship is not about Gerizim or Jerusalem. Worship is not about mountains. It's not about geography. Where you worship geographically is superficial. Instead of where you worship, 
Jesus focused on whom is to be worshipped and how that is to be done. He tells the Samaritan woman, you worship what you don't know. And as we talked about already, they didn't know why they were worshipping because their worship was incomplete and that is part of worshipping in truth. Jesus was saying, because the Samaritans do not have the truth, they cannot worship God. A worship center for the sake of worship means nothing unless there is a truth being proclaimed. We could say this about any structure that has been erected for worship around the world. If the truth of Christ is not proclaimed and his lordship exalted, there is no true worship. Now this is a difficult message in a pluralistic society where all worship is created equal. Jesus said that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The spirit mentioned here is not specifically the capital S Holy Spirit, but is the use of the term spirit to describe the man, the inward, the whole man. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives spiritual breath, that pneuma, or life to the believer, who is now able to embrace and delight and be satisfied and praise the Lord. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the truth of the Word of God to our understanding that we can outwardly participate in genuine expressions of worship. And these are the people who the Father seeks to be his worshipers. These worshipers fulfill the great commandment in Matthew 22, where the worshiper will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, mind, and strength. This is worshiping in spirit and truth. The entire man grounded upon the truth of God. The Greek word used for worship in Scripture is proskuneo. Pros, which is an advance toward something, and kuneo, meaning to kiss. Proskuneo, then, means to kiss the hand of one in reverence, to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. It is used 60 times in the New Testament. In Revelation, most often, with 22 uses. Now, just a quick question. Would anyone like to tell me why in Revelation we see worship more than any other book in the New Testament? What's the Revelation talking about? The revelation of Christ and our future in him. So what are we, what are we going to be doing for all of eternity? Worshiping. So it makes sense that Revelation has worship mentioned more than any other book. Now, I would like to make a distinction at this point between private worship and corporate worship, which is mainly what we're talking about today. There are things that we do in obedience and to the glory of God privately that no one ever sees, nor should they. And there are things corporately that are fitting for the gathering of believers. All that we do is either acceptable worship or unacceptable worship. In the privacy of our own homes or offices, there is either a heart of praise and adoration leading to God's glory, or a heart of flesh that leads to this unacceptable offering. There are 168 hours in a week, and if you are faithful in attending Sunday worship, which many of you are, and I thank God for all of those that are consistent in study and in attendance, and that is a work of the Spirit in your heart, that accounts for about three hours of those 168. And if you sleep regularly, which you should, it's about 56 hours of your week. Now, the Bible says whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. So every waking hour, waking hour, 
well over 100 hours of time, our opportunity to worship God. Privately, we worship God in humble obedience. In our homes, we love and honor our spouse. That's worshiping God. We love and discipline our children and make time to reflect on the love of God in family prayer and devotion. In our own private lives, we show mercy. We forgive others. We give of our time and wealth. We pray and meditate in our quiet space. And the King James translation says to enter into one's closet, though I know some of our closets are too full. Some are too small to enter into. And I was driving through Newburgh yesterday, and I wonder if all those yard sales, you know, that we see on a weekend are a community's desire to make space for a prayer closet. I'm sure it is. And I'm sure that's true of all of us here. But in private worship, we turn the other cheek when persecuted to the glory of God. Now, in corporate worship, and I borrowed this from, well, I stole it, I guess, because I'm not going to give it back to Mark Deaver, but Mark Dever Deaver, he is the pastor, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., which I'm sure is a very tough place to minister, but he taught about worship in a conference in 2005. He gave 13 points to consider. It'll go quickly, I promise. But 13 points to consider about corporate worship. Number one, God cares about how he is worshipped. In the Old Testament, the altars that were made were specifically unhewn stone. They were not supposed to be man-impacted. And the tabernacle and the temple, both of these had specific function, design, and instruments of worship. And they were very specific. Just ask Nadab and Abihu or Uzzah. The way God is worshipped was a deadly, serious matter for these men and for those who were responsible for leading worship. Even in our practice of partaking the Lord's table, we are commanded to examine ourselves and forsake sin, or else we eat and drink judgment unto ourselves. So God cares about how he is worshipped corporately. Number two, worship is fundamentally about God. If you're pursuing a place that has excellent corporate worship, you will never find it until you pursue God himself. You have to wonder if some people seek to worship the idea of worship. Why have we gathered here? Well, as the hymn reminds us, we have come into his house and gathered in his name to worship him. The second verse says, let's forget about ourselves and our experiences and our current experience of worship and magnify his name and worship him Christ the Lord. So it's about him. Number three, worship involves our whole lives, as we've already talked about in private and corporate worship. It's the entire man in spirit, the whole man. Number four, worship is hearing and responding to God's word. When we meditate, it's not mindless meditation. Worship, absent the preaching of the word, is not worship. The author of the word, the Holy Spirit, is actively bringing our hearts to meditate upon Christ. He is always directing our gaze to him. And that was one point I made in our first lesson. He's always pointing us to Christ. In so doing it will result in an obedient response. Number five, public worship is distinguished from the private. 
I don't need to say anything more about that. Number six, public elements are present. We have prayer. We have singing. Reading of the word. Preaching the word. Baptism and the Lord's table. Public worship, number seven, is the business of the church assembled. In order to publicly worship, we must first congregate. Public worship necessarily means we come together. In Hebrews 10.25, specifically, it says not to forsake this assembling of ourselves. I'm always encouraged every week that I come that I see familiar faces. It's an encouragement to each other. We share corporately in service of worship. And it says, forsake not, uh, forsake not your own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the, dra- the day drawing near. So that's number seven. Number eight, public worship should edify the congregation. Is what is done in the assembly going to strengthen us? Love, because every gift is supposed to be used in love, preaching, singing, you name it, serving. If when we come together it's not tempered with love, then our gifts will not be edifying, as we saw in the Corinthian church last week. And love makes much of worshiping God, or giving back the love that he's given us in worship, and love makes much of encouraging one another. Number nine, public worship is more than a certain musical style. Music has always played an integral role in corporate worship in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, it states, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. John MacArthur states, the point of music is not to stimulate emotion, but gives emotion an opportunity to react to truth. You can't worship until you understand the truth. Music driven at emotions, simply emotion, is a false form of worship. There were a lot of young ladies slain in the spirit then at Elvis concerts, if that were true. But music should be founded on the truth, given voice from the heart and an emotional response. And I just mentioned here, I give thanks for our leadership here, who understands and devotes hours of preparation to ensure our music furthers the truth and not purely emotionalism. I know they meet during the week, and they look ahead at the scripture that will be read in the body, and then they order their music based on the truth. So that's a blessing here. Number 10, passivity is always inappropriate in worship. We are to be actively reverent. Now, reverence is not the same thing as dead formalism. Okay, so let's be clear on that. And spontaneous worship is not the same thing as sincerity. We have people that read written prayers formally, but they are read in such a heartfelt way that it is sincerely worship to the Lord. Now, sometimes spontaneity can seem very authentic and seems sincere, but in many respects, it is insincere. There's no thought put into their thoughts that they're speaking, and they just speak what's on their heart, which is fine for testimonies when people are sharing what God has done in their lives, but preaching the Word of God is what I'm talking about. And sometimes you may attend a church service where the Word of God is shut, all service, and, and it's purely emotionalism. And that is not 
a spontaneous service in that way is not sincere. And it's not helpful. It's not edifying to the, to the body. So number 11, corporate worship then is worth preparing for. Now, if you guys got a bulletin this morning, you would see, and I referred to the bulletin last week, talking about all the ways of serving. And if you can see on the second, second page there of the bulletin, at the very top it says, Current Sermon Series. And it gives a list of the upcoming topics and scripture passages that will be read and exposited in the coming weeks. So what topics will be spoken in the week upcoming? Okay, that's one thing. Another thing, men's breakfast is next week. What will Keith Carter be speaking on? How can the music reinforce the ideas of the sermon, as we've already discussed? And even who shows up early to pray for the service before it begins? And I got that from Mark Dever also. He talked about people who showed up early for church, an hour early. It's quite a concept. Now, I know it's more difficult with children. I've got two little girls, and getting out the door... To be 10 minutes early for church is a challenge sometimes, so that is a very difficult thing for some families, and I'm not telling you have to show up for church an hour early. Nine o'clock is a great time to show up, just so everyone's clear on that. Number 12, true worship attracts non-believers. Really? Well, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ." and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Talks about in the next verses an aroma of life or an aroma of death. But the main thing is when we are biblically worshiping, it's going to attract the attention of the world. They're going to say they are doing what the Bible says. If they walked into a church service and it was full of these false signs, gifts, and um, there have been movies that have been made about, there are comedy movies that make fun of those kinds of worship because it's apparent. It's a uh, charlatan who's leading and it's a facade on the outside that all these great things, it's got a great storefront, but when you walk through the doors, it's like those old western uh, set, setups in those old black and white movies. It looks like a great western town until you walk through one of the doors and there's nothing there. So authentic worship will attract the attention of the world. First Peter 2 Verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that glorifying God is what I was referring to last week, how whenever we are acting out our gifts of service and they see the fruit that we're bearing, they can't deny it's good fruit. And I said they will glorify God, just not in the same way that believers glorify God. The glory that God will receive on the day of visitation, I believe, is the judgment of those um, in that day of visitation. But he receives glory in both respects, in his judging and in his saving. Now, our worship is not a pandering to the world. It's a glimpse into a true reality of adoration for our King. The seeker-sensitive movement, which is zealous to attract non-believers on Sunday mornings, is not compatible with worship. R.C. Sproul writes, um, this is his commentary on the Westminster Confession. It's called Truths We Confess. He says, according to the Bible, 
The only people who seek God are believers. Paul in Romans 3.11 tells us there is none that seek God in his natural state. Rather, people flee from God. If we want to have a seeker-sensitive worship service, Sproul writes, he says, we need to be chasing people down in race cars, for they are rushing away from the things of God as fast as they can. So, corporate worship being genuine, biblical, is much more appealing than the false. So let's move on to the last one. Corporate worship is your future. Earlier I stated that the book of Revelation uses the word proskuneo, worship, more than any other book, 22 times. From the angels that incessantly proclaim the glory of God to the song of the redeemed that will be lifted up from the perfected host of mankind. And then a great thought. The perfected host. Be perfect as he is when we see him. All of God's people forever will be with him. They will see him and they will worship him. Now, all of these things that I've talked about, all 13 points, are to be done in unity. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, we are reminded that preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is essential in our walk with the Lord. One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism— one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There's a, if you don't get that, reread it. You'll see the word one there a lot. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in The Basics of Christian Unity, that in the first century church, Jews and Gentiles were even united. He writes, in order that this may be abundantly clear, the apostle again reminds us, speaking of Ephesians, that it is the unity of the Spirit. In other words, it is a unity which is produced by the Holy Spirit and by him alone. Man cannot produce this, try as he may. <clears throat> because of the nature of this unity, because it is a spiritual unity, it can be brought into being only as a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit. He continues later, the Jews no longer prided themselves that they were Jews and that they had the law given to them, whereas the Gentiles were ignorant and were not in the unique position of being the people of God, as the Jews were. All of these differences between these groups had gone, and they are one in seeing their lost estate and condition, their utter hopelessness and helplessness, they are united in their common trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has purchased them at the cost of his own precious blood. That's the foundation of our unity. So then it is the Spirit who effectually calls us into this unity by convicting us and making us alive spiritually and enabling us to believe being that we are all products of this operation, we all share in the same hope of this effectual call in that we are all strangers and pilgrims in this world looking toward the same eternal home. The work of the Spirit always leads to the one hope of our calling. We share these truths in unity because we share the same gospel found in the Word of God. If we were to visit a church in China, an underground church that was proclaiming the gospel, we could share, as long as we had the same translation, we could share in the same hope. The foundational rift we see in churches that are full of discord and division is either a lack of the ministry of the Word they're not opening their Bibles, or it's being mishandled or miscommunicated, 
or twisted purposefully in the exposition. Doctrine matters because truth matters. We form our doctrine or our teachings from the truth of Scripture. If Scripture says this and that, and this truth is accurately taught, it is upon the hearer to maintain the unity by the obedience and the yielding to that truth, if it is rightly divided. If it is rightly divided, the truth, and it's rejected by the hearer, and the hearer leaves the fellowship, the Spirit will either in time or quickly convict the heart of that person who left through various means if they are his. And if they are not his, they will not return. That's not the pastor's fault. It's not the body of believers fault. It's not our responsibility to convict the heart. We do what the Bible says and being witnesses and proclaiming the gospel of Christ and edifying and encouraging one another to good works in love. But we can't keep people here. It's not our responsibility. That is the work of the Spirit that unifies our hearts. Corporate worship rightly performed will draw us together, and in unity we will fix our eyes upon the beauty of Christ, and from the overflow of our hearts we will sing to his glory. Even if you don't think you can sing, it's going to come out. Like when you press on your toothpaste tube and it just goes all over the place if you've stepped on it by accident or something like that. We will meditate throughout the week, not just in the three hours that we're in church, and serve in humble obedience. Nothing else can bring unity in the body of Christ except first the regeneration of the spirit in the individual and the mutual belief in the truth of scripture. Disagreeing on fundamental questions of doctrine does not produce unity. That's why it says, foolish and unlearned questions avoid in Scripture. Any body of individuals can appear united on the outside, while inwardly there is division and strife. Section 5 of the Westminster Confession, this is the last statement, says, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. FBC is not a perfect church, although when talking to other people... I might proclaim that it is because I'm thankful for the way the elders submit to the authority of Scripture. So some of the purest churches under heaven are both subject to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ. Their worship has excluded him. Therefore, they become synagogues of Satan. The confession states, Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on the earth to worship God according to his will. So that is a blessed thought. There is always going to be a church on the earth. Who will he find faithful when he returns? His church, the elect, the invisible body all around the world. So the true body of Christ will be united when our faith is not in men and their power to organize, but in the truth of God in Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in your handout, there's a couple of questions there you can respond to in your own time. But as you think about studying what's going to be preached on next week, that's what that second blank is. What's our scripture passage for next week? I hope we can find time to meditate on that. Read it and meditate on it. And see how that impacts your worship in the coming week. It will probably positively affect um, more active reverence, as Mark Dever was, was talking about. So any questions before we're dismissed here? I know we're out of time, but yes. Go ahead. This was corporate. Mm-hmm. Are you going to do one on private worship or no? Well, I, I 
will not do a private worship because that's more of our private sanctification that we talked about. And I touched on a little bit in here just about um, uh, fasting and praying. It's in your handout, actually. I didn't have time to include it in the text, but it talks about in our private worship, we fast, we pray, we show mercy, we serve, and that kind of thing. So, no, there's not going to be a lesson. Here's my question. Yes. So Darren's asking, can you have private worship without... Can I have corporate worship without private worship? Okay. That is, that's not for me to decide. I think that it's very difficult if you're not in your purification of heart when you're coming to church and, and if you're not in the Word at home and if you're not praying at home and if you're not... Um, serving your family at home like you're supposed to be doing, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to truly worship. Now, you can sing the songs, but as far as having a pure heart before God, it's, I, I would say that'd be very difficult. All right. Good question, Darren. Sorry I was rushed in answering that. Yeah, we could, and we could pick up on that question next week as well. So, all right, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are, again, grateful for all these truths that, that you've given to us. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would truly encourage each other and also worship you in our service. And we pray for those who will be leading us in the coming time. And may we tune our hearts to sing your praise and attend our ears and uh, perform that which we hear. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.